Well, good morning. My name is Mark and wherever you're watching, I hope this finds you well. A little bit earlier, Colin asked us, what are some big things? And he said that God is big and that there's nothing he cannot do. But right now, I think we have some big questions. And today I want to ask two big questions. They come out of our Bible reading, which we'll have in just a, just a moment. But I think they're also really big questions for a lot of people right now. The first question is, where is God? Is he watching over this coronavirus crisis? How can I know truth about God? Is he able to help us at a time like this, when there's this serious disease passing around the world? Where is God? How does a person meet him? The second question is a tough one. What if I die? What will happen? How will I face it? Is it the end or will there be something else on the other side? Now, they're both big questions. And the person who is going to answer them for us, it's not me, but it's a man named Stephen. Stephen was a follower of Jesus in the days after Jesus had risen from the dead and gone to be with God. And Stephen is famous for something. Some people are famous for their skills in sport uh, or their, their skills in acting in movies. And, you know, if the movie's a really big movie, then you'll get to, you know, this person will get famous. Or maybe people are famous for being in politics or whatever it is. Stephen is famous for something you don't really want to be famous for. Stephen was the first person ever to be killed for being a Christian. He died because he stuck up for Jesus. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel sorry for him? Does it make you admire him? Or maybe you say, mate, you, you really wasted your life. You should have just kind of kept quiet. Or does it make you feel a little worried or scared that one day the same thing could maybe happen to you? Of course, even if the same thing doesn't happen to you, maybe even talking about death during a pandemic reminds us all that life is fragile. And that people do die. We will all face death at some point. Maybe through sickness, but maybe just because of old age. So let's hear from Stephen now in our Bible reading. This is from Acts chapter 7. And just before we go to that, let me say something about the chapter that comes just before this. Last week we heard in chapter 6 that Stephen was arrested. God had enabled him to do some extraordinary signs or miracles, but this had made some people really angry. And they argued with Stephen publicly, but they just couldn't seem to land a punch. Stephen seemed to have an answer for each of their criticisms. And so they decided to play dirty. They persuade some people to tell lies about Stephen and later to testify in court falsely about him. Stephen is arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Council of Elders in Jerusalem. And as they're looking intently at him during this trial, before he speaks, they see something extraordinary about his face. It says his face was like the face of an angel. Something big going on there. Just one more thing. 
What we're about to hear is, G is Stephen's defense, and it's a long one. It can sound a little bit like an extended ancient history lesson, and you may find yourself along the way asking, what, why am I hearing all this detail? What Stephen is doing is answering two accusations. He's been accused of speaking against the temple, that is threatening to destroy Israel's most precious building in Jerusalem, and blaspheming against the law of Moses. But this is not fair. Neither of these accusations are true. In fact, it's the Jewish leaders themselves who are guilty, not Stephen. Not only the current leaders in the Sanhedrin, but also the leaders of Israel throughout history. So as we're hearing Stephen's speech, listen carefully for what he says about those two things, about God revealing himself in all kinds of places, certainly not just in the temple in Jerusalem. And secondly, about Israel always resisting Moses, never obeying his law. It turns out that this is not really Stephen's defense. It's actually a word of judgment on the leaders of Israel. Have a listen. This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 60. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set a foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they came out of that country and worshipped me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering to our ancestors and they could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh le learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor, at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. 
Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare, dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with words. Who made you a ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from my own people. He was in the assembly of the wilderness with an angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what was their own hands, that their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to worship the, the sun, the moon, the stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Repan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you to exile beyond Babylon. 
Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant Lord with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, thank you. It's a long reading, isn't it? But let's return to our questions. Where is God? And what if I die? Firstly, where is God? And we'll spend most time on this one. Most people answer this question in one of two ways. Some say, God is obviously everywhere. And so the question is a bit of a nonsense question. Why would you try to pin him down to any particular place? God is, well, God is God, whatever that means. And it'd be wrong to try to bottle him or to limit him in any way. Others say, well, I agree that the question is nonsense, but for a different reason. How could you possibly know where God is? There is an even more basic question than where is God? And that is the question, is God there at all? Unless you can prove to me that God exists, surely it is silly to try and work out where he is. Now, I understand both these um, answers, but I, I think Stephen's speech shows us a third kind of answer. And when life is tough, I think this third answer is actually more helpful to us than the other answers anyway. Because when life is tough, most people aren't really wanting a conversation about philosophy or metaphysics. We're wanting a spiritual connection. Where is God is a personal question. What are the big answers to my big struggles? Can I actually access the one who knows everything? 
the one for whom there is nothing he cannot do. If I'm afraid, can God reassure me? If I'm sad or downhearted, can God comfort me? If I'm in desperate trouble, can God save me? There are a lot of people at the moment feeling pretty fragile. Maybe where is God? It's not a bad question to be asking at the moment. Well, Stephen starts by taking us back to Abraham, who lived probably around 4,000 years ago. And we don't know every detail of his life, but there's a moment in his life that changes the world, not just for him, but for everyone. God speaks with Abraham and tells him to leave home. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 3. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And so there's going to be a special land for God's people, that, and that would become known as the promised land. But it's not as if that is the only place that you can access God. After all, God spoke to him in a foreign country. In fact, as you go through Stephen's speech, you see that God continually spoke to people in all sorts of places all around the ancient Near Eastern world. Very often not in Israel. In fact, many of the most significant places in which God speaks to a person are nowhere near the promised land. For example, in verses 9 to 15, Stephen talks about Joseph and all the other descendants of Jacob, whose other name was Israel, incidentally. And they lived in Egypt and they were cared for there by God's provision in Egypt during a long and devastating famine. And then in verses 30 to 34, God speaks directly to Moses. He's the great prophet and leader of Israel. But he speaks to him in the land of Midian, miles from anywhere. And God says these extraordinary words to Moses out of a burning bush on the side of a mountain in the wilderness. This is verse 33. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. You see, these leaders in the Sanhedrin, they're trying to accuse Stephen of blasphemy, that is, outrageous speech against God, by suggesting that he is dishonoring the temple in Jerusalem because that is where God dwells. That is where God speaks. And the only way to find God or to know him is to come to the temple. And yet Moses was nowhere near Jerusalem, and God tells him that the ground he is standing on is holy. Special ground. Take off your sandals kind of ground. Don't you dare defile it. Is there something special about this mountain that we missed? No, God is talking to the man on the mountain, and that's what makes the mountain holy. When God speaks, God is present. That's where God is. And therefore, when God speaks to you, you're on holy ground. So do you then, you know, pick up some of the special dirt that you've been standing on and, uh, you know, put it in a bottle and go and stick it on display in a cathedral, or some kind of relic of God's holy presence and we can all revere it? No, that's ridiculous. That dirt can be washed away with the next downpour, no problem. 
What we do when God speaks is that we make sure we're listening. Where is God? It's wherever he is speaking. How do I connect with God? Well, I listen. I obey. I trust what he says. How else do you develop a relationship with someone, a connection with another being? How else should we respond if we hear God speaking to us? But you may be asking, well, why is there a temple in the first place then? Was it God's idea for that to be the place where they would meet him? And the answer is yes. Before it was a temple, it was an elaborate tent that Israel would carry around wherever she was going. The tent was called the tent of meeting. But when you met God at the tent, it was actually to have your sins taken away. The interesting thing about the tent and the temple is that there was a big curtain that divided up the inside of the building or the tent. And no one could go through that curtain except for one priest once a year after the sacrifices. And that curtain showed people that sin was the obstacle to meeting God. If you disobeyed God, it made you unclean. You needed the priests and the sacrifices to take away your sin and to enable you to connect with God. Now that temple was God's idea. And yet there was a big change that had now happened. At the end of Stephen's speech, he says this. This is verse 48. The most high God does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my, is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God doesn't say that because the temple was someone else's idea. It's because everything was changing. The prophet was predicting the change. And Stephen and the other disciples, they had seen the change happen with their own eyes. One of the things that miraculously happened while Jesus was on the cross dying, or as he died actually, was that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And it was torn from top to bottom, which, you know, no human being can tear a curtain from top to bottom. As Jesus was dying outside the city to forgive our sins, God was tearing up the barrier between him and us inside the city. And with that curtain gone, there was no longer any need for priests or sacrifices. There was no longer any need for the temple itself. Even us Australians, we can meet God cleansed of our sin because of what Jesus has done. Now, this would have been a very difficult word for the Jerusalem Jews to hear. <clears throat> but for those who had become followers of Christ, it was vital that they stopped depending on the temple. Christ was now their way to come to God, their way to know God. He is the word of God. And when you come to him, you are standing on holy ground.
the Christians had to follow the same instruction that God had given to Abraham that we read in verse 3. Leave your country and your people. They had to let go of Jerusalem and the temple. That's a bit like us having to let go of Cornerstone College. That's what church is for us, right? We chuff off every Sunday morning. We do our bit. We head home for lunch. It's, it's sad to break good habits, and it's, it's hard to break ourselves away from what we've become used to. You know what happened after Stephen was killed? The, the early church was dispersed. The next chapter tells, that, tells us that a great persecution broke out, and all of them, except for the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Chapter 8, verse 4 tells us, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Do you remember where we first heard about Judea and Samaria, if you've been following this series? We heard about them way back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I wonder if God's people needed a little nudge to get them out of Jerusalem. And I wonder if we need a little nudge to get us out of Cornerstone and, and to rethink how we, how we are the church and how we preach the word. Not just how I and the Bible study group leaders preach or proclaim the word, but how all of us do that. Where is God? He is found in his word. In Jesus, the word of God. In the message about Jesus, the word of God. And in the disciples of Jesus, the church. I do happen to believe that the church should meet and that God is to be found in that meeting if the people are proclaiming and living out the word of God. But during this time when we can only meet virtually or by the phone, we're still meeting. We can still pray. We can still proclaim. We can still think of ways to speak the truth about God to people. I think this is a timely message to us. God is to be found in his word. So let's not hide that from people, no matter what our circumstance is. And if you are someone who doesn't believe that you know God, then can I invite you to read about Jesus? Perhaps type Mark's gospel into Google and read it on Bible Gateway. It'll take about 90 minutes and you will be standing on holy ground. God has revealed himself to the world in this person. Well, briefly then, what about the second question? What if I die? Stephen accuses the Sanhedrin of betraying and murdering the righteous one and of disobeying the law of Moses. And both those accusations, they are true. And both of them ignite the fury of the Sanhedrin. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, his last words in the Sanhedrin are his most inflammatory words. This is verse 55. 
It says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now to them, that is the worst kind of blasphemy. It's a massive insult to them. The idea that Jesus, the one they killed, is standing at God's right hand as the Lord, the vindicated one. The idea that Jesus is God's right hand man and that Stephen claims to be speaking the truth about this. And so they rush at him and they're, they're covering their ears and they're screaming at the top of their lungs and they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. Fury and wrath. That's to them. But to us, Stephen's words are actually the light of hope. What does he see as he's standing there before them and he, and he, and he, he looks up? To, to heaven, God gives him a vision of the heavenly reality. He is right there standing on holy ground. And so it doesn't matter to him if he dies because he is safe in the arms of God, safe in the arms of his Saviour. Jesus, the name that they've all been proclaiming as Messiah and Lord. He's actually really there with God. The one who speaks our innocence to God is right there at God's right hand. And what does that mean for us? The one who reversed our shame, who died our death, and who rose to life to give us eternal life is right there in Stephen's sights. I don't know if any of us will ever have to give our lives for the name of Jesus, but I pray that if we do, that God gives us a vision like he gave Stephen. What if I die? I go to be with God, because that's where Jesus is. As I record this talk, the number of deaths from COVID-19 continues to skyrocket. Death is a real issue. We look at other countries who are ahead of us in the infections and deaths and we see carnage around the world. And if Australia must go through what Italy, the United States, Spain, Germany, France, Iran and the UK are currently going through, then can we keep remembering that God is not unknown? He has spoken through his son. And if we have responded to that in faith and repentance, then he is with us. We don't face death or grieve without hope. No, Jesus is our hope. That's the whole point. Where is God? Come to Jesus. What if I die? Well, come to Jesus. Let me lead us in a word of prayer wherever you are. I invite you to bow your head and, 
and, uh, and pray to God and uh, you can know that he hears you. Loving God and Lord of the universe, Father of our Lord Jesus, our Saviour and the Messiah, God, we thank you so much that you have spoken and that in the words of Scripture we have your words, pointing us to Christ, your ultimate expression of yourself. And as we think about your words to us, we reflect and realize that we are standing on holy ground. Father, help us to treasure the fact that we have heard from you, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And so we can know you. And, and you're not limited to any one particular place. Our Father, as we are dispersed around many different places at the moment, viewing church on a video and connecting with each other electronically, please remind us that we are still one in your spirit and one in your son. And help us to keep on proclaiming Christ. Help us to do it even at risk to ourselves. Lord, as we think of the question of death, please comfort us. Please give us that reassurance that standing at your right hand is our saviour Jesus. Stephen saw it just before he was killed. And Lord, may that drive our lives. May that perspective shape everything we do and think and say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.